0: Amen. Well, good morning. Really good to see you. Uh, If you're a guest, my name is Blake. I'm the pastor. I want to say a a special welcome to the college students. Really good to see many of you back and uh, see many new faces. And I want to, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to urge you, I want to urge you as you're here, especially you first years. If you're here, let me urge you and exhort you and encourage you to make the local church, wherever you land, a central part of your life. I was converted my first year in college, actually, and I wish someone would have come to me and said, listen, the Lord's plan A is the local church. Parachurch ministries are great, valuable in so many ways, but the plan A is the local church, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. So as you come here, get plugged in somewhere, use your gifts to build up the local church. The local church doesn't actually need you, and you need them. And so get plugged in and join and be shepherded. And I want to also urge you to find a church that takes this word seriously. Now, of course, all churches say we believe the Bible, every church says that. The proof really is how that Bible's handled. So let me encourage you to find a church that preaches the word every week. Find a church that's committed to what's known as expositional preaching. All expositional preaching is, is preaching where the point of the sermon will be the point of the passage. So find a church committed to week by week opening up this book and telling you what's in this book. Not what's in the pastor's funny stories or creative energy or whatever it might be. What's in this book? And the reason is you will grow. You will grow spiritually. The main engine for spiritual growth that that God has given us is his word. And so for your own growth, for your own joy, for your own sanctification, find a church that's committed to the preaching of the word. We do that here at Southside. So if you're new, we've been in the book of Romans for, I don't know, I've lost track, most of the year. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 for six more weeks. I know I told you we'd be in it for seven weeks. It, it just keeps, it's, it's extending. So we're going to be in it eight weeks. And here's what we're going to do. Whatever the text has before us. We're going to cover. And so this morning we're in Romans chapter 8 verses 5 to 11. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 887. And most, most scholars agree that Romans is the greatest book of the Bible. All important, all inspired, all inerrant, but Romans is the most important letter in the New Testament. Therefore, it's the most important letter in the world, right? And many agree that chapter 8 is the most important chapter in the letter. And so this is the most important chapter of literature ever written. And we've got six or more weeks in it. I hope you're excited. I challenged you last week to be reading it. Be reading Romans 8. Read it again and again and again and again. I was talking to a brother this morning. who said his great-grandmother, every time he would see him, would just rattle off Romans 8 by memory. What a gift. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, this section of Romans 8 is really a descriptive passage. There's not a lot of prescription in these verses, but it's a description. And really, what the Apostle Paul is doing is contrasting two pictures, well, more than two, but contrasting pictures of the Christian and the non-Christian. So we'll see five contrasts of who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ. And so the first of those contrasts is in verse 5, and it says, the non-Christians are those who set their minds on the things of the flesh. And again, if you're a Christian, this was you. Look at verse 5 again. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And in Romans, those who live according to the flesh, that's just another way of saying those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, non-Christians. The flesh is who we were in Adam. It was our pre-Christ self, our old person, our old man, humanity in rebellion against God. So what Paul's doing is he's just contrasting those who know the Lord and those who don't know the Lord. When we trust in Christ, we're transferred from the realm of the flesh, Adam, to the realm of the spirit, last Adam. In Christ, We see that down in verse 9, chapter 8. You, however, believers, are not in the flesh but in the spirits. And the contrast is that those who are in the spirit, he says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those in the flesh, non-Christians, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Well, what are the things of the flesh? They focus only on worldly things. Here's how the J.B. Phillips paraphrases it. The carnal attitude sees no further than the natural things. Non-Christians set their minds on the things of this world and only on the things of this world. Whatever it may be. It may be power. It may be beauty, outward beauty. It may be money. It may be pleasure. It may be school. It may be grades. It may be selfish ambition, reputation, social status. All sorts of things, but they're focused only on the here and now. They're only consumed by tomorrow and the next day and next week and the next month and not the things of eternity. They love the worlds. Second contrast, number two, Christians, though, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's there in verse 5 as well. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit, just in no way saying believers, right? Verse 9, you're not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. Believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Non-believers are not. We are those who set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And so we see right here, once again, just how important the mind is. The mind matters. Thinking matters immensely. And so, so much of our life begins with our minds. Begins with how we think, which is why the teaching of the Bible, sound doctrine, is just so important. Because the mind is bound up with the life. It's a very tight connection. In fact, if you remember last week, we covered verses 1 to 4. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk. Another way of talking about living. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Connecting word. For, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So you see, walking and living and thinking all are bound together. It is a very tight connection. And notice he doesn't say those in the spirit set their minds on the spirit. He says they set their minds on the things of the spirits. The spirit actually doesn't want us to focus on him. He's actually quite shy in that regard. He doesn't want us focused on him. He wants us focused on the Son. Here's what Jesus says about the Spirit in John 16. Jesus says, he, the Spirit, will glorify me. The role of the Spirit is not to exalt himself. The role of the Spirit is to exalt the Son. So we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Part of that means we set our minds on Jesus. We are those who set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We think a certain way. We focus on certain things, holy things. Of course, that means that we don't focus, we don't set our minds on unholy things. We think about things above. That's the way Colossians 3 puts it. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above not the things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We are those who think about the things of the spirit. We set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. But those who are of the flesh, non-Christians, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. You see, we we see that our thoughts and our actions, our minds and our lives, they actually stem from who we are. They stem from our nature. Our nature. Our mindset expresses our nature. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. So the things of the Spirit certainly includes that good fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit. Notice the similarities in these passages. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, here are the things of the flesh, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these this is the things of the flesh I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the spirit here are the things of the spirit and here's what we ought to set our minds on love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness Self control against such things, there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, the question for us this is descriptive, but let's prescribe a little bit. The question for us is what do we set our minds on? What do you focus on? What is it that preoccupies your thought life? Another way to ask this is how often do you think about the Lord? If it's only for an hour on Sunday, I don't think we can rightly describe us as having our mind set on the things of the Spirit. And so the question is, what is your mind set on? And here we learn that there really is no neutrality. Neutrality is a lie. It's a myth. There is no neutrality. We are either setting our mind on the things of the flesh or we are setting our mind on the things of the spirit. We're never just being still. We are always either pursuing the Lord or we are drifting away from the Lord. We must be engaged. And this is serious. Notice the consequences of your mindset in verse six. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This is so important. If you set your mind on the flesh, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to the end of life. Death in this life and death eternal. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, the result, he says, is life and peace. Life. Life as it was meant to be. Life to the full. Here's what Jesus said in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And it's not just a flourishing life, not just life abundant, but life eternal. Life that never ends. That's the result. And the result is also peace. Peace with God. We were formerly enemies. Remember Romans chapter 5. Now we're friends. The hostility has been removed. The wrath of God has been absorbed on the cross of Christ, so it's no longer upon us. That was last week. We have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace with others. We're now one in Christ. We're able to forgive. We're able to resolve conflict, being able to forgive because we've been forgiven. And we have peace with ourselves because now we're rightly related to our Heavenly Father. We know who we are. We know whose we are. We are those who are in Christ. And so we see that the way we think is really important. Our mindset matters immensely. From these verses, we learn that our mind determines our deeds. And then in verse 6, we see that our mind determines our destiny. Because those who have been born again will think a certain way. And those who have not will think a different way. So Christians think differently about everything. We have a different worldview. We have a different mindset. It's another difference. The third difference is that non-Christians, those in the flesh, are spiritually unable. It's in verse 7. Four, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These verses are simple, but striking. They're stark. They teach what doctrine that's been called various things, whether it's spiritual inability or total inability or total depravity. I prefer radical depravity. The idea is that radical from the root, we are invaded by sin every part of us so that apart from the grace of God, we are unable to respond to God, unable to please God. Non-Christians are hostile to God. They're hostile even if they don't think they're hostile. We've seen that if you've been in Romans, but if not, flip back with me to Romans chapter one. A description of those outside of Jesus Christ, a description of those of us before we were saved by Christ. Verse 18: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's hostility. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the worlds in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. There really is no such thing as an atheist. This verse says that everyone knows there is a God. God has shown it. What do they do? They rebel, they suppress. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Hostility against our Maker. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. End of verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, aside from God. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There in chapter three, verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't care about him. They don't honor him. They don't fear him. Flip over to chapter five, verse 10. For if while we were enemies hostile. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies. We were hostile to our maker. Why? Why were we hostile? Well, it was right there in Romans 8, verse 7. Let's read it again. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for, because, because, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Well, where? why the hostility? Because it doesn't submit to God's law. It's disobedient, in other words. Non-Christians are hostile to God. We were hostile to God before we came to Christ. And we show our hostility by saying, no thanks. We show our hostility by not obeying him, by not submitting to his word. Oh, man, doesn't culture hate submission today? It's a four-letter word. We hate submission. We hate authority. But Christians don't have that option. One way to distinguish Christians and non-Christians is that Christians are those who submit to God's authority through his word. Non-Christians are those who seek to be their own authority. And this is just the air we breathe. I've illustrated it before by using the various slogans that companies will use. The most brilliant is Steve Jobs. By putting the little I before all his products, the iPhone, the iMac, the iPad, the world of the individual, you rule. But there's various ones that really don't make any sense. But because it's the air we breathe, just listen to a few Nike, just do it. Regardless of consequences, regardless of what others say, just do it. BK, have it your way. I've recently changed that, I think, to just be your way. Forget others, forget externals, forget authority. You do you. Bacardi rum some embrace the night because the rules of the day do not apply forget the rules forget the authority This one's the strangest easy spirit Easy spirits a brand of shoes. I think mostly women's shoes It says our shoes conform to your foot So you don't have to conform to anything (laughs) Polo living without boundaries Merrill Lynch who should be very stable and should appreciate submission, says, your world should know no boundaries. I'm glad they don't operate that way. Non-Christians do not obey the word of God. We, before we came to Christ, did not obey. We were hostile. Why? Because we didn't obey. They don't want God ruling over them. They want to rule themselves. And remember, this started way back in the Garden of Eden, which is why it's a continual problem. Genesis chapter 3, an ocean of yeses. You can have any tree, just don't have one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because it will show that you think, Adam and Eve, that you will be the ones who will determine what's evil and what's good. God is the one who does that you submit to his authority and instead what they do they wanted to be their own god and said you know what we will be the ones who will decide what is right and what is wrong look at verse seven again for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot spiritually unable it doesn't even have the ability to Non-Christians do not have the ability of their own to respond positively to God. We were, Ephesians 2 says, dead in sin. Spiritually dead. When we were in Romans 3, I used the illustration of someone drowning. It's not that we were drowning and needed a life vest or a life float. No, we were dead. We were already at the bottom of the ocean. What do dead people do? Nothing. They don't respond. They're unable, and so were we. Look back at Romans 3, where we saw that. Look at Romans 3, verse 10. Spiritual inability. Look at verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. No one seeks for God. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 13. It speaks of the spiritual inability Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. An Ethiopian has no ability to change his skin. A leopard has no ability to change his spots. We who are evil left to ourselves, we have no ability to change ourselves. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leopard's spots and melts the heart of stone. His power alone can change us. Or listen to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44. Spiritual inability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Non-Christians do not have the ability of their own to respond positively to God. Jesus says, no one has the ability. No one can come to me. Unless the father draws. Or listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Speaking of the unbeliever and the believer. The natural person is the unbeliever. The spiritual person is the believer. And Paul says the natural person, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned unable non-christians cannot respond positively to God on their own and you say wait a minute if I was unable to respond how did I because I'm here and I did I'm glad you asked because it's right here in the next section of my notes (laughs) notice what I said I said non-christians cannot respond positively on their own God must intervene. God must draw. That's what Jesus said in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So we were dead, and even though we were dead, God made us alive. That's how it happens. We were dead, and He made us alive, and He gave us the gift of faith. Ephesians 2 5. Even when you were dead, He made you alive. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not about you. This is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You couldn't respond to God, but God regenerated you and granted you the gift of faith, granted you the ability to believe. He overcame the hardness of your hearts. He replaced the stony heart with a heart of flesh. He removed the blinders, and so that Ancient hymn, fairly ancient, and can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's nights. Your eye diffused a quickening ray, a ray that makes alive. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke. The dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Spiritually unable. Paul uses the language of calling to refer to this gracious initiative on God's part. He starts the letter to Romans saying, it's written to those who are loved by God and called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, we were called into the fellowship of the Son. 1 Thessalonians 2 says, we were called into the kingdom. And for Paul, this calling is not a mere invitation. It is a sovereign summons. The older theologians called it the effectual call. I love that language. This call is effectual. Listen to how some older divines put it in the London Baptist Confession of 1689. They describe this calling. They write, In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing By his grace. It is an effective call. It is a sovereign summons. It changes our hearts. And if you're a believer, it happened to every one of you. At some point in your life, you were not interested in the things of God. You resisted him. But then God, in the language of this confession, made you willing. He took off the blinders. He opened your heart to believe, as Acts 16 says, as Paul's preaching to Lydia The Lord opened her heart to hear what Paul had said. And all of a sudden, Jesus became irresistible. And you trusted in him. If you're a believer, that happened to you. It's like with Lazarus. Remember the story of Lazarus? Dead in the tomb, already decaying. In fact, King Jimmy says, by now he stinketh. doesn't matter. Jesus just has to issue two words. Come forth. And Lazarus is awakened from the dead. That is exactly what happened to us. We were unable. God made us able. Paul uses the language of calling to describe that. But John uses the language of the new birth to describe that. He says we're born again. And only when we're born again can we even see, much less enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 3. Here's how he puts it in First John five, 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been Born of God. See, we had to be born again to be able to believe. Regeneration doctrinally precedes and enables faith. We must be born again so we can see and then enter the kingdom. Look again at verse 7. Romans 8 verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, again, isn't this so striking? This is so politically incorrect, but here it is right before us. Non-Christians cannot please God. Before Jesus, we could not please God. Why is that? Well, because God is holy and we're sinful. Habakkuk says that his eyes are too pure to even look at sin. Isaiah says our sins have hidden his face from us. Before we were called, we were unable to respond. We were unable to please him because our nature wasn't changed. We were in rebellion against him. Nothing that we did was for him. Nothing that we did was for his glory. Nothing that we did was done from faith. In fact, flip over, keep your finger in Romans 8, flip over to Romans 14. Look at verse 23. There at the end of verse 23, for whatever does not, proceed from faith is sin whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin this is a starker picture of sin than most people hear or teach whatever is not out of faith is sin and for non-Christians nothing proceeds out of faith in Jesus this was us friends this if you're a believer this was us we were hostile to our maker we were unable we were unwilling but God made us alive, saved us by grace through faith, gave us the gift of faith, reconciled former enemies to himself through the death of his son. Fourth contrast, Christians are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We see that in verse 9. You, however, Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So we're no longer in the flesh. Now we're in the spirit. When God called us, we were transferred from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit, no longer in Adam, now in Christ. But he adds a condition here. He says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, if you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to God. But if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. A Christian is one who has the spirits. And all Christians, at the moment of their conversion, receive the gift of the Spirit. Acts calls it being baptized with the Spirit. There are some traditions that teach that baptism in the Spirit comes sometime later. That's not what the Bible teaches When you believe in Jesus, you are baptized with the Spirit right then and there. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And so when we trusted Jesus, became part of the body of Christ, we were baptized with the Spirit. And notice the apostle here can call the Spirit the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ here in the same verse. It's not that they're the same. They're not. They are eternally distinct, but they share the same divine essence and will. They are distinct but inseparable. Here's how John Stott puts it. He says, what the Father does, he does through the Son. What the Son does, he does through the Spirit. So the Son and the Spirit are so closely related in providing salvation for believers that Paul can refer to both without a thought. Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit. John 14, the Father will send the Spirit in the name of the Son. John 15, the Son says he will send the Spirit from the Father. So Christians are those who are in the Spirit. And the Spirit indwells Christians, unlike non-Christians. And then fifth and finally, Christians will be given resurrection life. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Here we have more union with Christ. Normally it says that we're in Christ, but it can also say that Christ is in us like it does here. And although the body is still dead because of sin, meaning we're still subject to physical death, even though we've been saved, we will still die unless the Lord comes back beforehand. The wages of sin is death. We've earned that. We're still outwardly wasting away. We have been redeemed, but we still live in this overlap between the two comings, so that it's not yet fully redeemed. Our body has not yet been redeemed, even though we've been redeemed spiritually. We'll see that in a few weeks. Flip over to Romans 8.23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so if you trusted Christ, you've been redeemed spiritually, but yet we await the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. And we groan. And it says the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit gives life. The spirit is the one who gives life. And here it says he does so in verse 10 because of righteousness meaning on the basis of righteousness. And here, if you've been with us, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about those chapters 1 to 3 where we need righteousness, but there are none righteous. In chapter 4 and 5 where in Christ God has provided righteousness. We've been credited with righteousness through Jesus, not our own. And because of that, we will have life. It's basically the same thing he said in chapter 5, verse 18. There he's contrasting the two Adams, Adam and the last Adam. And he says, therefore, as one trespass, that's Adams, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's Jesus, leads to justification and life. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Just like last week's passage, this passage is just Trinitarian through and through. We see the beautiful harmony of the Father and Son and Spirit. Let me just reread one verse, verse 11, and notice how we have, If the Spirit third person of the Trinity of him that is the father who raised Jesus that is the son from the dead dwells in you he the father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you you have the doctrine of the Trinity there in one verse if you have the Holy Spirit and if you believe in Jesus you do have the Holy Spirit the one who raised Jesus will give life to your mortal bodies the father will raise us from the dead Through the spirit who already dwells in us. The spirit is the down payments. Or there in verse 23 we just saw we have the first fruits of the spirit. If you know anything about farming, the first fruits are those first fruits that come. And they tell you there's more coming. Well, if we have the spirit, that's the first fruits of the resurrection. We know we, we will be raised because of the spirit indwelling us. Ephesians 1 puts it this way. When we believed in Jesus, we were Sealed. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. If we have the Spirit, we are guaranteed we will be raised from the dead. And Paul says the body's dead, and he calls our bodies mortal because the wages of sin is death. Again, if the Lord tarries, we will all die. In fact, we're born dying because of sin. Our very first breath is already one of our lasts, which is why especially college students, don't play around. Life is so short. Center your lives on Jesus Christ because you'll be my age like that. I feel like I was just your age and I'm about twice your age now. Get serious because your life is short. Your body is mortal. But though we die, the promise of this verse, yet shall we live the body is dead, but it's not bad. The body's not bad. Let us not make the mistake of the Gnostics. There's no dualism where the physical is bad and the spiritual is good in this verse, but it is fallen. It's good, but it is fallen. But it won't always be that way. Here we can have hope even when our bodies feel dead. <laughs> they won't always be this way. We await, Romans 8, 23, we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies will be given resurrection life. Christianity is good news for the body. The ultimate Christian hope is not some floaty, cloudy, disembodied heaven. The ultimate Christian hope is resurrection. It's physical. It's resurrection life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to how Philippians 3 puts it. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the hope. Those who are in the spirit, believers, await resurrection life. So summing up the contrast, those who are in the flesh, set their minds on the flesh, they're hostile to God, they're unable to obey God, they're unable to please God, they're headed to death. But by grace, those in the spirits set their minds on the things of the spirit. They are able to please God because of their new nature, and they will be given resurrection life. Aren't you thankful for grace? Aren't you thankful to be a Christian this morning?